Hello and welcome to Motive Insights, the Motive Partners podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back to Motive Insights. I'm delighted to be joined today from all the way over in Brooklyn, New York, by Tom Whiff. Tom, you're the Vice Chairman of Institutional Securities at Morgan Stanley, having had an exceptional tenure there of nearly 35 years. You're also the Chairman of the ARC. Can you tell us a little bit about your career as it's seen all sorts of different corners of the financial services ecosystem? Certainly. Yeah, I've been around the funding, financing markets, uh, repo, securities, lending, and things like that. And I think that this work that we've been doing at the ARC on LIBOR certainly has every flavor. And as you'll see on the membership in the ARC, we've really had to create a cross-section of the industry buy side and sell side, you know, industry utilities, obviously the U.S. regulators serve as ex-officio members. And I think the, the thing we've learned here is that there's not a specific practice that anyone can really bring. We've really needed to span the entire financial services spectrum of expertise to really pull this together. So, you know, although my background has really been in funding and collateral, we bring together people with trading backgrounds, with technology backgrounds, operational backgrounds, regulatory backgrounds to ensure that this project, which is enormous by any measure and has been referred to as a couple of Y2Ks, can get done efficiently and, and safely. So let's talk about the Alternative Reference Rates Committee for just a moment. And as you've said, you've you brought together a super diverse group of people and entities spanning from some of the largest financial institutions to industry trade groups. Why did the Federal Reserve Board and the New York Fed convene the ARC in, I think it was in 2014? Yes, and it was really a response to work that had happened following the LIBOR scandals that was conducted by the G20 finance ministers, the Financial Stability Board, and the U.S., the Financial Stability Oversight Council, really was a response to what do we do now and how do we take this forward? And I think, you know, it was basically assembled in November of 2014, and it had a, a pretty specific mandate to identify a new rate and to determine how we could implement that and how to actually get the market off LIBOR and onto for dollar LIBOR, an alternative reference rate that was robust and transaction-based in nature. And that really was based on the work that had been done in analyzing what had been the fault lines within LIBOR that brought us to the point of the challenges in 2009 through 2012. Let me just repeat some of that and then we can extend it. The ARCs initial mandate was to identify risk-free alternative reference rates as we transitioned away from LIBOR, which I remember all too well because I was at Barclays Capital at that point, which was a pretty wild place to be. And in 2017, the committee identified the secured overnight financing rate as its recommended alternative. What is the SOFR? And out of the numerous options considered, why did the art determine this particular one was going to be the best alternative to LIBOR, which everyone had known for so long. Yeah, so the work really, you know, from the original convening of the ARC to the determination to select SOFR as the preferred alternative for LIBOR, an enormous amount of work was done. And I think what we did was we we went to first principles, which was what were the things that existed in LIBOR that were most challenging? And at the point that we began our work, you know, for dollar LIBOR, you know, because of the sort of reduction in interbank lending, and interbank lending is the underpinnings of LIBOR submissions, that the 19 panel 
banks would look at you know interbank trades, submit them to the panel at the administrator, and that would be the rate. Well, from its inception, you know, way way back in 1969, and I think you know probably used in derivatives after 1986. The use of LIBOR had grown exponentially. So at that point that we began our work, there were nearly $250 trillion in contracts that referenced dollar LIBOR. Underpinning that in the interbank markets were less than $1 billion in actual transactions. Now, the gap between a billion dollars in underlying transactions and all those LIBOR points was what we call expert judgment that was employed by the submitting panel banks. So what we really needed to do to correct what we felt was the major gap was to identify a rate that was based entirely on transactions. And once we had that path, you know, we spent a lot of time looking across alternatives and we ended up really with two choices because when we looked at it, we knew that if the use of LIBOR was going to continue at the current pace, we needed to, as certainly as a cornerstone of the work, have as much underlying transactions as possible, as many underlying transactions, as much notional as possible to underpin the usage. And when we looked across things like treasury bills, Fed funds, other reference rates that might be applicable, we really got down to two. And the two were the overnight bank funding rate, which is published by the Fed, and the treasury repo rate. And the treasury repo rate ultimately is SOFR. And when we looked at the comparisons and volumes, the overnight bank funding rate at that point was probably in the, you know, basically 150 to 200 billion, whereas the treasury repo market, which is what SOFR is, had over a trillion dollars in transactions. And in fact, due to some work that was done at the Office of Financial Research and the New York Fed, there've been a lot of data compiled around this repo rate. And the New York Fed had data that was usable going back decades. So what we had was a rate that, although was new to the market, the product itself wasn't new to the market. So the determination was between these two rates, we went out and we consulted with the market. And so the period of the convening of the ARC to the determining of the rate, it did take a couple of years, but we felt that we had done a broad consultation and it picked a rate that with over a trillion dollars in underlying activity, no reliance on expert judgment, and it would be administered by the New York Fed, an unassailable administrator, that we had created what we felt was a, a real good foundational rate for the market to rely on. Wow, this is fascinating stuff. I take from my first role on the trading floor of Bark Apps here, I never would have guessed I'd be talking to the chairman of Bark. And hearing you talk about a lot of this reminds me of our colleague, industry partner, Stephen Daffron, who would have been a colleague of yours at Morgan Stanley for some time as well. And his role on the OFR must have been a coinciding time to a lot of this. So if we think about the different instruments, e.g. derivatives versus mortgages, um, and how they pose various challenges in the transition away from libel. There isn't one approach that can accommodate it all. Can you speak to some of those work streams that you guys worked on that have been established and how they're working with one another to ensure the full coverage of the transition? And I guess kind of debunk and break down how ARC is, is structured ultimately. I think the work began, and if we looked at this you know, way back when, we saw that obviously the, the vast amount of notionals and risk rested in the derivatives markets. So there was a lot of focus on that from the beginning. As the work progressed, we also understood that, you know, although, you know, probably 85 plus percent of notionals that would be impacted by, you know, a cessation of LIBOR was in the derivatives market, 
the lending markets in the United States also presented a set of challenges, as did some of the cash bond markets. So our work really began to split off and we have over you know a dozen working groups beneath the arc who work on things whether it be accounting tax business loans consumer products floating rate notes you know market structure regulatory securitizations and we found is that once we identified you know sort of the path forward in derivatives which was certainly a, a tall task unto itself the complexities of the lending markets and the bond markets moved really sort of to the front of the queue. And I think since that time, there's been tremendous work done in the derivatives markets. Uh, the work that's happened at ISDA in creating a protocol that has put out safe fallbacks, that protocol was released last year, and it's been extremely successful. One of the big concerns we had, Sam, when the protocol was released, that we were unsure about take up of the protocol, but it's been, there's nearly 14,000 entities that have now adhered to the ISDA protocol. And that protocol creates basically a safe landing between SOFR and LIBOR when LIBOR ends permanently in June of 2023. So we've really got to a point now where all this work has come together. The bond markets, largely the ARC created fallbacks for the US bond markets, the bonds that have floating rate features. That has been taken up pretty aggressively. And I think our focus, and I think the focus globally across all the currency groups that have been established by their central banks is the lending markets, and tough legacy, tough legacy being the things that really can't be amended, you know, through protocol or through any amendment process that we are working on several paths. But in terms of how we looked at this, you know, initial focus of the ARC was on derivatives, a lot of time spent on the floating rate note market, both at the ARC, and we've leveraged a lot of the great work that's happened with the UK Sterling Reference Rate Committee as well to work on the bond markets. But I'd say from here and this point forward, all of our focus really has been on the loan markets. And that with, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, that would have been obvious because the loan markets have such a broad set of participants and products and conventions and the like. So there's there's a lot to do here. But you know, at its core, you know, the arc, I think probably three or four years ago, we we realized specifically there wasn't a one size fits all and we had a lot of work to do at a product level. Yeah, I, I mean I could only imagine that one size doesn't fit all with something of this complexity. Did you know Motive Partners has a weekly newsletter? It's called Motive Insights. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with everything you need to know about financial technology from our team of experts. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. I want to talk for a moment about that international view. So the arc's focusing on the transition from LIBOR in the US, but as you said just a moment ago, there are substantial complexities in the lending markets, for example, and, and other public and private sectors globally that are going to be impacted. So how is ARC working with international bodies to help manage similar transitions? I imagine there's a huge amount of learning that's happened within ARC that you're trying to transfer to help others on similar journeys. So there's a coordinated group that's set up by the central banks at the beginning, the, the official sector steering group or the OSSG. And that group really is where the international coordination has been taking place. Currently, that's co-chaired by Governor Andrew Bailey and by President John Williams of the New York Fed. So what we have is you know, an organization where each central bank has convened its own version of the ARC is dealing with its own set of challenges in terms of their own markets, You know what alternatives have been selected, what path to implementation has been selected. But that's really the governing body that controls this from a central bank perspective and has been extremely effective in bringing us all together. And then additionally, in terms of the you know the IBORs that we're you know we're talking about, whether it be Swiss, Euro, Sterling, Yen, we all 
collectively host a meeting once a month and stay connected around our issues. And I would say that as we've all moved through time, we found that the work that we're doing, although it seemed very, very, you know, sort of independent and disparate and a wide spectrum of plans, we are beginning to intersect around the same place, which is derivatives markets feel that they're moving, you know, well along the path. The bond markets, you know, a lot of safe fallbacks have been put in place. Some people are moving very quickly to use the new reference rates in those markets. And the focus has become on the loan market and tough legacy. And that's really where the path's going. So as time has gone on, the international coordination definitely has paid off. And I think that each of these groups is you know, addressing their own set of challenges. And we certainly all value the work that the OSSG is, has put together. Well, firstly, thank you. I mean, that's super insightful. And you may tune into our Motive Insights email service on a Sunday that we send out. And I remember towards the end of last year, reading news that in Q4, US regulators had issued some guidance that encouraged banks to stop entering into new contexts that used USD LIBOR as a reference rate by the end of this year. Could you give us a little bit more insight into what that announcement actually means? What happens at the end of this year and any other material impacts? Sure. Yeah. Last year, at the end of last year, we had a, a rash of announcements that came out, both from the administrator of LIBOR, the IBA, from the regulator of LIBOR, the FCA in the UK, and the US banking regulators, the FDIC, the OCC, and the Fed. And we've looked at those as a package. And, and the package really made it clear that with the exception of a number of dollar LIBOR settings that you know LIBOR would sunset across Swiss Euro LIBOR, not your IBOR, Euro LIBOR, sterling and yen at the end of 2021. And that dollar LIBOR, there would be a cessation event at the end of June of 2023. So there would be a series of consultations around those dates. Those consultations were completed by January 25th. But with that, really became the other half of this bargain, which was, although LIBOR, there's, there's a longer runway for dollar LIBOR, U.S. regulators basically put out supervisory guidance called SR 20-27. And what it really says is that banks cannot enter into new LIBOR contracts at the end of 2021. It's very direct in that, and it talks about safety and soundness and reputational risk and litigation risk. So the supervisory guidance is we need to literally stop digging the hole on dollar LIBOR across the U.S. banking system. Other regulators around the world have also made the same sort of same statements around dollar LIBOR, and we've created this roll down. So between the end of this year, when we can no longer create new LIBOR contracts, and June of 2023, there's an ability for so much of the market, more than half of what's out there now can actually roll down safely without having to address fallbacks and waterfalls and things of that nature. So because we have that in place, we now are basically in a position to utilize that roll down, stop production. And that is very clear that U.S. banks need to stop producing new LIBOR contracts. And your timing is perfect, Sam, because today we just did get the final announcement from the FCA that these cessation events have occurred. So as of today, all the spreads are fixed around these events. Those spreads that we use for fallbacks will apply at the end of dollar LIBOR June of 2023. But we just today got the final piece of the puzzle, which was the announcement of either cessation of LIBOR at the end of 2021 or June 2023 for dollars. 
and basically the clear path now. So at this point, we've really just today got the final piece of the puzzle, which we hope will again be the piece that, you know, finally accelerates the last yards we need to travel here. That's awesome. If this was a a live podcast, I'd say you heard it here first, but it's not. So (laughs) everyone would have heard it. But that's awesome. What a privilege to be speaking to you on a day when the final announcement of the cessation of LIBOR is, is a real thing. And congratulations, by the way, because I know how I mean, this must have been an enormous, enormous amount of work. How how many years worth of work? Well, you know, I've been involved with the arts since the beginning and I became chairman, I guess, about two years ago. But the work has been just incredible. And the amount of people, you know, we speak about the working groups and the amount of participants we have, but there's over a thousand people who are directly engaged with the ARC, along with our, you know, with our membership, which is, again, as, as you mentioned, you know, quite diverse and we bring a lot of practice to the table. And I think that the motivations that we've seen and the energy that we've seen around this has been just amazing. And I think the people who have really committed their time to this, you know, in the overall interest of, you know, safety, soundness, financial stability, should all be commended for their work because when you think about where we began this with you know globally 400 trillion and financial contracts referencing LIBOR and if you asked anybody you know to your earlier point about your career Sam in, uh, in 2014 that there would be ultimately no LIBOR you know, it would be an unheard of statement. And and so the fact that people have just continued to work this order, as Mr. Daffron says, to take this through to completion has been pretty amazing. So the work now really, again, is, you know, the derivatives market, but we don't want to forget that there's also a lot to do in terms of, you know, operational risk and technology and, and model building. So there's still an enormous amount of work ahead of us, but we did a lot of this work without really knowing what the final pieces of the puzzle would look like. But right now, I think we have most, if not all, the puzzle pieces in place so people can do, I think, what people in our business are pretty good at, which is, you know, addressing a deadline and doing the work. Yeah, well said. And I mean, $400 trillion of LIBOR contracts, what an unbelievable and perhaps seemingly insurmountable task at the time. So yeah, huge commendment and appreciation to those at ARC for all of the work that they've done. We're coming towards the end. I've got a, I've got a couple more questions, and, and one of which, actually, I want to veer towards the financial technology community, which won't surprise you given the nature of, of Motive Partners. But the use of LIBOR as a reference rate is, well, it's broad and extensive, and it doesn't just impact capital markets, as we all know. Can you maybe describe the impacted parties within the financial services industry that need to contemplate this transaction? And how do you think the fintech community and I guess broader innovation is going to play a role? When we look at LIBOR, you know, you can go from the from the most complex structured derivative right through to the most simply calculated consumer loan. So it, it spans the entire industry. So we've got the ARC put together a, you know, we have an operational work group, we have a vendor working group, and the work that we've seen has been very, very important to to this challenge. I mean, one of the key things, I think, early days were people figuring out how to use AI to read their contracts and and how to understand where they had LIBOR, right? If, If you think about the beginning of this, understanding where your LIBOR exposures were, if you ask most firms, they would say, well, we have a bunch of derivatives, we have some of this. But then when you start digging in and you look at actually just funds transfer pricing within organizations, internal agreements, and the hundreds and hundreds of documents, and as people applied fintech to this work, they were able to greatly accelerate that. One of the other things, and I think, you know, it's certainly as you get really technical on this, the ability to compress transactions, right? Using the compression services that are available to get your notionals down. So I think, you know, more and more people are beginning to think about 
How does that work? The work that the CCPs have done, the work that the compression firms have done to really bring this together. Because at the end of it, we really want to get to a point that we just have less to deal with. So whether it be this roll down corridor till June of 2023, whether it be amending loans that are currently are on the books, whether it be compressing derivatives aggressively to reduce notionals, you know, these are all the paths, but these are the places where fintech has already played an enormous role. But I think we'll play certainly in dollar LIBOR an even more important role as we try to, you know, really get through the repaperings, the identification, the amendment process, consent, and so forth on bonds. There's a lot of work to do, but, you know, the fintech community has already played a large role. And I think for the last miles will be as if not more important. I completely agree with you, Tom. And, and I look forward to seeing where it takes us. In fact, we were originally connected by our mutual friend, Andrea. One of the things Andrea said to me was, you got to speak to Tom. He's one of the most interesting, thoughtful people I know. And when I've got a person on the line in a podcast, I always like to ask a little bit about learnings and experiences from careers. And whether it be your role and your long tenure at Morgan Stanley or, or as ARC's chairman, both of those roles have been, I imagine, amazing learning experiences. So the question I have for you is what experiences in your career and what are some of the biggest lessons that have helped you on your journey? You know, I'd have to say that, you know, obviously, you know, spending a long time at Morgan Stanley and working through a lot of these areas of, you know, market infrastructure and plumbing of the markets has helped the experience of, of being on the arc. When we really cross through the financial markets, there's just so much detail and so much expertise and the quality of people. And as we've gone through this work, I can say that there are critical moments where a particular ARC member or working group member would bring up an issue that, although at the moment might have seemed, you know, kind of super technical and not really all that relevant, turned out to be some of the bigger things we've seen. And I think when we expanded the ARC to include buy side, sell side, financial market utilities and beyond lenders, borrowers, that the ability to hear all voices and to ensure that all parts of the market were represented and heard was an important, I think, learning experience for myself and I think for everyone on the ARC because we kind of came into this saying we've got this giant problem that's primarily in the derivatives market. But as we really peeled away the onion on the lending markets and the bond markets, we realized although they were smaller, and by smaller, by the way, we're talking you know double digit trillions, although they were smaller, they were as important to this process and as critical to this process in many ways more complex. So I think, again, it's been a, and continues to be just a real privilege to be around the types of expertise that we get around that table. Amazing. Tom, I could ask you questions all day, but good news for you is I can't. And I will definitely be picking up the phone to you next time. Well, next time the world allows us to travel and I get to come to your great city. Thank you so much for your insights today on the Motive Insights podcast. And of course, if there's ever anything we can do to support you, you know who to call. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of Motive Partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Motive Partners. Motive Partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation 
obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry, the economy, motive partners, or motive partners' investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax, or other professional advice, or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.